Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, How Do We Enter the Heart and What Do We Find When We Enter? The Way of the Pilgrim and the Prayer of the Heart. The talk was given by Regina Sarah Ryan on January 7th, 2023, via Zoom. Regina is the editor of Home Press, a workshop leader, retreat guide, and the author of The Woman Awake, Igniting the Inner Life, Praying Dangerously, Only God, and other books. In this talk, she speaks about the wisdom of sinking the mind into the heart. She discusses Christian mysticism and the prayer of the heart, a practice of remembering the divine that is similar to the use of mantra in the Hindu tradition. Regina draws on writings from the Philokalia, the Cloud of Unknowing, and the Way of the Pilgrim. And she considers the contributions of Thomas Merton and the practice of Hezekiah, or stillness and tranquility. She also references some of her experience with her teacher, Lee Lazowick, and his teacher, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Regina Sarah Ryan. Well, let's begin by finding ourselves present and alive and in existence, present to our own existence. We can do that with a breath, can do that by relaxing. And I'm going to recommend that we do that with the words of the great Indian sage, Ramana Maharshi. He said, sink the mind into the heart. So take a moment to just let those words touch you in some way, sink the mind into the heart. And then just do a very simple bow of your head down towards your heart. This gesture is a ritual that occurs in all traditions. And we're basically bringing that active mind down and we're aiming it towards the heart. This is the essence of what this type of bow is doing. Sinking the mind into the heart and acknowledging a wisdom that we don't often tap into. I'm going to read a favorite prayer of mine. It's a prayer that is a translation from the Tamil Indian language. It's about entering into the heart and what this particular sage found there. It's a prayer. Thou who hast entered the depth of my heart, enable me to give my whole attention to this depth of my heart. 
Thou who art my guest in the depth of my heart, enable me to enter myself into this depth of my heart. Thou who makest thy home in the depth of my heart, enable me to be seated in peace in this depth of my heart. Thou who alone dwellest in the depth of my heart, enable me to plunge deep and lose myself in this depth of my heart. Thou who art all alone and all in all in the depth of my heart, enable me to disappear in this depth of my heart. Rumi says that there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And so in asking ourselves this question, how do we enter into the heart and what do we find there? The answer is that there are a thousand ways to enter into the heart. And what we find there is often very similar to what others speak about having found there when they have entered into the heart. So our invocation tonight and the possibility that we share tonight is not only an exploration of what we might call my heart, this heart, but an exploration of what we might call the larger heart, the sacred heart, the world heart. And it may also then include the hearts of all of those who are connected in this chamber of consideration on the subject of the heart. So as we're joined in this, perhaps you could just in your imagination, because you don't know how to do this, nobody knows how to do this, you might see each person here and embrace each person here with the heart. See them with the heart. Thank you. So always my teacher, Lee, would be instructed by his master, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, to say something useful. The great gift of saying yes to do a talk is that one has to articulate or study more deeply, feel into, practice, so that one can speak from that place. So I'm hopefully going to say something that will be useful to me. And so far, it's been useful to me, this study. And if it's of use to you, you're the one who decides to take and use it in whatever way is, is most beneficial for your own practice. So I used a quote in the write-up from the former UN Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld, who many of you have heard of. And he said, understand through the stillness, act out of the stillness, conquer in the stillness. So as we enter into the heart, or as we look at entering into the heart, what we find there, he has touched upon that. So many of the buzzwords that we'll use in this talk tonight have to do with the stillness. They have to do with the silence. They have to do with the expansiveness. They have to do with the connectivity. So this talk is about remembering and about inspiration. 
really, I'm going to give you some interesting stuff, maybe stuff you may never have heard of before. Probably not all that much, because you're all kind of sophisticated in the spiritual domain, but maybe you'll get some new facts. But really, it's to enliven and awaken this sinking of the mind into the heart. That's the big purpose, uh, the big possibility. So you've probably all heard of the words, the prayer of the heart. And we're going to explore a little bit about where that came from and what that means in a particular tradition. And I'm going to be referring a lot to the Christian mystical tradition. So for those of you who haven't already listening for not being into that tradition because of the way in which it was given to you in catechism or Bible study, I'm going to ask you to just move a little bit beyond that possibility and perhaps enter into a larger domain in which this tradition, which is so ancient, has deep seeds of wisdom. So I'm going to be using some references. One is The Way of the Pilgrim. It's probably one of the most well-known texts that is used by people who are studying prayer and the mystical tradition. In fact, if you ever read J.D. Salinger's book, Franny and Zoe, you know the whole book is based on the fact that Zoe begins to say the Jesus prayer so much that it is causing tremendous upheavals in her life, in her body, in her mind. And the book is based upon a lot of the work that she's saying she's experiencing and that others are judging as being crazy. It's actually really interesting to look back at that book. I haven't read it in years and years, but just in preparing for this talk and looking on the net again, I found some really cool stuff. Some guy is writing and he's saying, I never knew this was so good. It's really about Jesus and the prayers. Who knew when we were in high school or early college and we were reading that book? Many of us had no idea what we were reading, but it may have stuck in your mind that you heard of the Jesus prayer through that book, that novel, Franny and Zoe by Salinger. The other references that I'm going to make are earlier than The Way of the Pilgrim, and they are from the Philokalia. This looks like a tiny little book, but actually it's, it's sayings from six volumes of the Philokalia, or five volumes, depending upon which version you might get. I think I have five. And the Philokalia are the ancient writings of what are known as the fathers of the desert, the early fathers of the Christian church. And these guys were in Egypt, and then they were in Mount Athos in Greece. And they were deeply immersed in this mystical tradition of stillness. We'll go back to that give you a little more historical background. The other book I'm going to be referring to is another famous classic in the Christian mystical tradition. It's called The Cloud of Unknowing. And that is written by an anonymous person in around 1350. Besides The Cloud of Unknowing, this person has also written the epistle on the Privy Council, whatever that means, but it's an up-leveling of the teachings on mystical prayer from this tradition. And last but not least, I'm going to be quoting a lot, depending upon how much time we have. If we get into one thing, I won't get very far, but 
other than that, I'm going to be quoting from a wonderful book, and it's called Merton and Hesychasm. It's Thomas Merton and the early Christian mystical tradition known as Hesychasm, which I'll be explaining to you. And the subtitle of the book is The Prayer of the Heart. And it's all the writings that Thomas Merton did with regard to this particular tradition and this particular prayer, plus the writings of a whole lot of other people who are supporting it and talking about it. So ready for a deep dive or at least a deeper dive than many of us have experienced before. We'll talk a little bit about these texts and what they mean to us and what they point to, because I want to make this a really practical experience, not just an academic lecture. The subject interests me greatly. Many of you know that I did write a book called Praying Dangerously. So I have been on the trail of prayer ever since I was a child. I am drawn to prayer. What prayer is and how prayer is and why prayer is and what it does and can you prove it and all of that. Those are questions that I leave in the domain of mystery and often in the domain of darkness, because just like the question of what is God, as the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, all paths don't lead to the same thing. All paths lead up to the mountain that is surrounded in the cloud, and it's covered in the cloud of mystery. So we're actually entering into a domain that I find tremendously comforting. I find it comforting because you can't control it and you can't even define it and you can't put one face on it and say, this is God or this is a prayer or even this is what the heart is. It is rather something that has to be experienced and it's something that's only experienced through some degree of interest and practice. And ultimately, the great masters will tell you that if there is even the tiniest urging within you to explore these depths, then this is the very divine that is asking to be explored through and as you. So it's kind of a dance, you know, you put some effort in, you take a few steps forward and the great mystery propels you forward into itself. I hope I'm making some degree of sense out of some things that are completely unspeakable. So it was probably around the 1850s that The Way of the Pilgrim was written. He was a Russian, a Russian peasant, really. He was known as a stranik. That was the word for the pilgrim. And it was very common in those days for people to wander, kind of like sadhus in India, wandering and begging. But these pilgrims were wandering and visiting holy shrines and visiting monasteries. And this guy was taken by the words of St. Paul in the epistle to the Thessalonians. And St. Paul says, pray always. Pray always. And this is the thing that pushed this particular pilgrim in his journey. So he goes and he goes with very little. He's like peace pilgrim. She went with a water bottle and a comb and a pen, I think, in her backpack. And he went with that too. And maybe he was given bread as he walked along and slept wherever he found places to sleep. These Russians, they like to do stuff like this. They like to do these extreme things. 
Thomas Merton has this whole piece in this book about the extremes of the Russian mystics saying it's kind of in the personality of the Russians. But the other thing that's interesting to note is that Russia is so much in our attention in the world scene. And what we may be forgetting is that there are deep mystical roots and unnamed pilgrims and unnamed seekers on the path who are walking or on their knees or sitting in caves or in churches that they can find open in Russia and in the Ukraine right now. There are deep, deep roots of transformational work going on there. So as we hear the horror stories, and as we may be finding ourselves creating polarization with the Russians, we might also remember those who are our brothers and sister pilgrims on the path and join our hearts with theirs. It's a way of entering into the heart. As we enter into the heart, we enter into the hearts of those who are entering into the heart. So this guy, unnamed, Stranick guy, wandering along, asking door to door, who can teach me to pray always? I want to know how to pray always. And he finally, through many, many trials, comes across a particular wise elder who turns him on to the Philokalia, which I mentioned earlier. Remember, the early volumes from these fathers of the desert, fathers of the early church. And these guys are writing about these mystical traditions of prayer. And they're also talking about this prayer of the heart. And this tradition of the prayer of the heart is not all that different from the traditions of the repetition of mantra, ages old in the Hindu tradition. But this was the development in the West where these isolates, hermits living on mountains, were attempting to find truth. They were attempting to become so quiet and so still as to hear the voice of truth, to hear the voice of God. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Mount Athos in Greece, but it's pretty spectacular as a visual and to imagine hundreds and even thousands, thousands of these people living in these caves, isolated in order to find God or whatever that was that they were seeking. Much like the hermits in the Himalayas, people have always gone away. They've gone out into the desert. They've gone into the mountains. Why? You tell me. Step outside your door and tell me (laughs) that you wouldn't want to have a little place of sanctuary, a little place of quiet. One of my dear friends, Narasimha, just got back from India, where he was for about six weeks. And all he can keep saying is, oh, the silence. Thank God for the silence that's here, because we live out in the desert in northern Arizona. Yeah, the crazier the world becomes, the more we look for a place to retreat, a place of sanctuary, a place in the desert, not necessarily the physical desert, but Could we possibly live a less stimulated life? Wow. (sighs) That's an important question, I think, because it's only going to get more, you guys. Now they're talking quantum computers in five years. It's only going to get more and more. 
So for me, entering into the heart, entering into a place of pray always, entering into a place of stillness, I think it's necessary to build that inner mountain, to build that inner cave, and to connect from that inner cave to the hearts that are beating around the world. The uh, French mystic and philosopher Simone Weil spoke of her friend, the great writer and humanitarian Simone de Beauvoir, and she said she was a woman whose heart beat around the world. And I think it's more and more necessary. So as the pilgrim in the 1850s starts reading the Philokalia and starts receiving instruction from these elder that he met, he starts getting instruction in the repetition of the prayer of the heart. And they start him off with, say it 1,000 times today. After that, they tell him, say it 5,000 times today. And then now say it 10,000 times a day. Now say it 12,000 times a day. And what they're doing with this type of practice is they're inviting him to, to actually breathe it, to have it with every breath. And that's actually what we do with mantra also. I hope we don't put ourselves under a numerical prescription of how many times we have to say it, because that tends to undermine exactly what we're doing it for anyway. But the idea being that some diligence, some practice, allows a particular prayer to become so much a part of our being that it arises with many thoughts. It arises with the breath. It arises in something we see on the highway, something we read in the news. So we are becoming a vibrating membrane. In this case, the prayer of the heart is related to Lord Jesus. It says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Sometimes it's done with a much longer phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a poor sinner. Sometimes it's much shorter, my Jesus, mercy. Sometimes it's just Jesus. So he begins to say this, and it becomes his natural organic breath. Some of us have had the opportunity to go to India, to travel around with some of these singers and musicians in the Indian mode who are singing the name of God, singing the praises of God all day long, morning till night. And I know when I came home from India on one of my early trips when I went with Lee, literally my whole body was vibrating with the chant for a long time. And it was coming back to me quite a lot. And it was very ecstatic. It was ecstatic, but it was also very evocative of presence and attention because I had brought into my equation of my life, I had brought in a type of remembrance. And bringing in that remembrance of what in the fourth way terminology they call the third force was an incredibly valuable way to continue in my life. One of the things about the Philokalia is that you're talking second, third century after Christ. Sad to say, a lot of the work of these monks and mystics was incredibly 
body negative from my viewpoint. So I read these guys and I start writing letters to the editor <laughs> to tell them to please uh, just lay off a little bit. And at the same time, some of them are so ecstatically beautiful with what they write about the relationship to the body that it's breathtaking. The one that I focused on is St. Simeon, who's known as the New Theologian, who has a piece that has been quoted all over. It starts off by saying, I awaken in Christ's body. So if you can separate the idea of Jesus person with the idea of Christ, which is the brilliance of divinity incarnate, and allow that to inform you. What Simeon is saying is that I awaken inside of the huge field of a divine body. That awakens me. And because I awaken in that body, every part of me, every finger is that awakened one, is the Christ. And he goes on several verses and he ends with this piece. For if we genuinely love Christ, we wake up inside Christ's body where all of our body, all over, every most hidden part of it is realized in joy as Christ. And that one makes us utterly real. And everything that is hurt, everything that seemed to us dark, harsh, shameful, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is transformed in Christ and recognized as whole, as lovely, and as radiant in that one's light. We awaken as the beloved in every last part of our body. I'm sure you have heard, like I have heard, so much separation of spirit and matter, body and mind, or mind and soul. And this prayer of the heart and the essence of the teaching of St. Simeon here is talking about a transformed humanity, a transformed body. So everything is transformed. Everything is awakened. Everything is filled with grace. So I'm going to just jump briefly into the definition of hesychasm and then take a little break here and have you give me some responses. So the word hesychasm or hezekiah is H-E-S-Y-C-H-I-A, hezekiah. It's a Greek word. It means tranquility. It also means the same as in the Latin quies, peace, quiet. And in his work with his novices, when Thomas Merton was the novice master, he even defined it as sweetness. Sweetness, the hesychast is the one who longs for sweetness, who's looking for that inner sweetness, who's connected to that inner heart in rest and quiet and stillness. So you probably heard the famous line from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. 
And my own teacher, Lee Lazowick, said, in silence and only in silence will you know me. We'll finish up this section by reading you a poem from a good friend of mine whose name is Red Hawk. And this is from his book, Return to the Mother, a Lover's Handbook. And it's number 17. And the words of Lao Tzu are, the chase and the hunt craze people's minds. That's Lao Tzu. And then Red Hawk comments, the fool prefers to remain a complicated little status quo machine fueled by personal history and enslaved by unconscious inner forces over which they have no control. It is those forces which create the chase and the hunt. We chase after what we already have and hunt for what lies hidden within. But when the mind releases its grip through careful and unceasing vigilance, because it cannot stand to be seen in the clear light of scrutiny, the immeasurable stillness stands revealed. It is poised, elegant, voluptuous in its praise of emptiness. Oh, that was a lot. So now it's up to you to tell me some things. Tell me about thinking with the heart or sensing with the heart or seeing with the heart or entering into the heart. It's really important that we stir the pot a little by hearing from you what's been aroused. I was thinking... This afternoon around two o'clock, I was out doing some errands and I was just thinking about that. You know, it's just so noisy. There's no way to get away from it. Yes, there are ways, there are places, but you know, in general. The worst noise is the one in my head. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about coming back from India, you know, and doing the mantras and being in ecstasy, I think the difference is what we listen to. If you're listening to the mantras or you're listening to that racket in your head, it's the listening which makes a difference. Mm -hmm. I spent Christmas Eve at an Orthodox monastery. I can't tell you just how profoundly moved I was by being in that space that is devoted to the ideas that you're sharing. Yeah, it's encouraging and exciting to hear that there are places we can go. There are sanctuaries. And we can carve out a little moment for ourselves. Just have to start looking around. I was fortunate this Christmas to be in a hermitage, which sounds terribly ascetic, but it was more like a little condo in the middle of the desert out in uh, Tucson where I went last Christmas as well. Yeah, there are places one can go to listen and to really be with that intense noise <laughs> that's going on in, in our own heads. But getting out into a place of nature or getting into a place like the monastery 
or at our ashram, there are real vibratory (laughs) chambers where silence and stillness can be found. And they're so incredibly rich feeding for us. If we can't create one in our own home, then we can make a little pilgrimage. Pilgrimage, I think that's one of the reasons I was so wanting to talk about this way of the pilgrim is because I think this whole idea of pilgrimage has lost its meaning for us. There's a whole lot of Caribbean cruises that go on and vacations that we take to quote unquote, get away from it. But the idea of a pilgrimage of going in search of, or open to the listening, opening to wisdom. Yeah. That's my idea of fun. Well, I think that there's a longing for that, that we all feel. I remember as a kid being in church during high mass and someone would be playing the organ and I'd feel transported into another dimension. Somehow as children, we're still connected to that. And people still long for that. They, I mean, I go to church all during the year, but on Christmas, more people probably do. And there is a mood that gets created. But also, I was thinking about this quote, Jesus wasn't always so gentle from the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, men possibly think that I have come to throw peace upon the world, and they do not know that I have come to throw divisions upon earth, fire, sword, war. I mean, he was really stirring things up, too. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people just want peace, and there's all this conflict around that somehow we have to come to terms with. Well, I'm not a scripture scholar at all, but that quote is often used in the same way that we talk about what the goddess Kali is bringing to creation. So if you see the goddess Kali, the imagery of her, she has a sword in one hand and she has a mala of flowers or benevolence in the other hand. One cuts the head of ego and the other blesses us. And having lived around a spiritual master for 30 years, I know the experience of one who will bring down the sword on the head of ego and will bring division to my stable little definition of what the world is like and will cause me to go into confusion, to have to work out the confusion that is blessing because I'm so habituated to a particular way of thinking that I need something to, quote unquote, stir the pot. I'm not sure how the commentators would reflect on the word war, but I would reflect upon it in the sense that there is a war to be waged. It's not necessarily with guns and bombs, but it's definitely to be waged with vigilance and discipline and interior listening and creating bonds and bridges with other people that have been destroyed. That's more where it comes from for me from that. I'm thinking for myself, without being in touch with my own negative emotions, maybe I'm just covering that up 
with ideas of peace and love. But if I really have that stirred up in me and work through that, then mm-hmm. some real transformation is possible. And then I can really know peace and love at a deeper level. Something completely different came up for me when I'm in a creative process, whatever I'm creating, then I am one with, then I'm in the stillness. When I'm painting or pottery or landscaping or so the creative, the feminine part, then I am not in the doer mood, then I'm in my heart when I'm allowing my feminine side to be creative in silence. So it's like an active silence in a way. For me, that is easier as an entrance point because the loudest I ever experienced was while I was on retreat. I needed to get away from this absolute stillness surrounded me to walk or the few distractions you can have on retreat that was so loud and I needed some going outside and doing a little the rock, the mandala or singing or expressing myself to come to a silence in my thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk for a few minutes about this heart that is referred to when we speak about the prayer of the heart. In the Philokalia, it's very clear that they're not talking about generating affective emotions or warm, fuzzy feelings. No. Because peace on earth, goodwill to people of goodwill that we get at Christmas time, that's a very superficial understanding of what we're talking about. Give me a little peace around here. I need some peace and quiet, my dad would say. (laughs) And they're not talking about the heart in that way. They're actually talking about the whole person. And the heart is the moral compass. The heart is the place of resonance where divinity is focused or centralized, but it actually lives throughout the whole being. So the heart is actually the whole body, mind, physical complex. It's not one particular organ of the body, but it does seem to be an entry into a full body consciousness rather than just a thinking. So when I was mentioning this wonderful book, The Cloud of Unknowing, and the entry into the cloud, the darkness, they're talking about this whole body experience of the presence rather than an image, a face, a particular kind of feeling, but rather a sense of being penetrated by presence, by the presence of divinity in all things. So really the question we're asking is this question that we study when we study self-observation, is how do we bring ourselves alive in each moment? How do we recognize this inherent force field of love that we are swimming in all the time, bringing ourselves into a sense of presence? So one of the other great Christian mystical texts that people refer to is the text called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, the monk who worked in the kitchen and was always having conversations with God. He personalized it 
and was interacting with it. But really what he's reflecting is that divinity surrounded him and he was always moving and working and speaking and flowing with this sense that there was a larger heart in which he was held. I'll read you a definition from Thomas Merton about this heart. He doesn't even actually refer to it so much as the heart, as the le point vierge, the virginal point, the purest virginal point. Merton says, at the center of our being is a point of nothingness, which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a pure point of truth a point or spark which belongs entirely to divinity, which is never at our disposal, but which divinity disposes of with our lives, which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our mind or the brutalities of our will. This little point of nothingness and of absolute poverty is the pure glory of divinity within us. It is, so to speak, the name of God written in us. As our poverty, as our indigence, as our dependence, as our sonship, it is like a pure diamond blazing with the invisible light of heaven. And this is the part I love, he says, it is in everybody. And if we could see it, we would see these billions of points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that would make all the darkness and the cruelty of life vanish completely. I have no program for seeing this, but it is given. The gate of heaven is everywhere. You don't necessarily have it in the imagery that Merton is talking about it, but there is within us that virginal point, that point of basic goodness, that untouched seat of godliness, that jewel in the heart of the lotus, however that arises for you. That's the attention that we're doing when we bring the mind into the heart. That's what we're bowing to when we say, Om Namah Shivaya, bow our head, Om Namah Shivaya. And to actually meet each other with the recognition that each one has this blazing sun, like a diamond, and it may be covered over in many veils, <laughs> many costumes, and many personality quirks, and even acts of violence and cruelty, but that there is within us all a place of the sun. And Thomas Merton was no spiritual bypasser. He was very much involved in those anti-war efforts and had his eyes wide open to the hysteria and cruelty of the world, while at the same time urging us to develop this place of peace, this prayer of the heart, this focus on this inner life within ourselves. So I'm going to talk about what it is that this kind of prayer, what it is that this kind of sacred silence does for the world. And I'll give you a taste from a few different sources. This beautiful quote from one of these early saints within the church who said, quote, 
acquire inner peace and thousands around you will find their salvation. How about the poet Kabir? When one flower opens, a thousand flowers open. Callistus Ware, one of the monks of Mount Athos, a bishop on Mount Athos, we shall never achieve peace in the world around us unless we possess some measure of peace within our own hearts. And if the pilgrim himself could speak, which he does in his book, he would say the following, which he did in his book. He says, quote, When I prayed with my heart, everything around me seemed delightful and marvelous. The trees, the grass, the birds, the earth, the air, the light seemed to be telling me that they existed for man's sake, that they witnessed to the love of God and for humanity, that everything proved the love of God, that all things prayed to God and sang God's praise. Thus it was that I came to understand what the Philokalia calls, quote, the knowledge of the speech of all creatures. I felt a burning love for all of God's creatures. When I started out on my wanderings, I did not walk long, as before, filled with care. The invocation of the name, the prayer, gladdened my way. Everybody was kind to me. It was as though everyone loved me. If anyone harms me, I have only to think, how sweet is this prayer? And the injury and anger alike pass away, and I forget it all. What the monks of Mount Athos were telling us was that this repetition of a prayer of the heart leads to silence. And Merton talks to his novices very, very clearly about not making an act of trying to be a spiritual athlete or trying to do this perfectly, but rather to do some inner discipline of a remembrance of the heart. Some of you probably have known about the practice of centering prayer, which has been written about by Father Basil Pennington and Father Thomas Keating and is practiced throughout the Christian world right now. Very simple way of repeating the name or a phrase of love or a phrase of longing. People are instructed in doing this on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Choosing of a word or phrase or mantra really wakes us up, brings us back to this place of the heart. It's very important, like I just said, not to try to be a spiritual athlete about this. Merton says that the guys he's instructed in the monastery who tried to do this perfectly, who try to remember God at every moment, they never last. (laughs) Uh, It's the ones who relax into the presence create the intention, and then allow it for some periods of the day so that they can practice it, but then allow it to arise. So you walk out the door of your house and you don't start thinking about God or you don't force yourself to say some mantra. You relax into the coolness of the air and the warmth of the sun and what arises spontaneously from you is that heart prayer. At the same time that we have the spontaneity, we also have some discipline to bring ourselves to the place where 
we start orienting ourselves in the direction of that inner life, that inner work. Trungpa Rinpoche used to use the phrase, use a light touch, touch and go. It's not battering, saying the mantra, saying your mantra, saying your prayer, doing your prayer. It's a light touch. It's a feminine touch. It's a spontaneous listening and then allowing what spontaneously arises. Ultimately, what the monks on Mount Athos are aiming at with the prayer of the heart is to set the heart on fire, is to be consumed in love. Now, I know we live in a crazy world. We live in a world that's just full of pain and suffering and terrible things happening to people. And what arises out of an inner life of prayer is the possibility of enlightened action or simply witnessing and blessing what we see. I had the opportunity before I went on retreat this Christmas to visit the Arizona-Mexico border and to go back and forth three different times in different places through the wall. And you want to talk about being confronted with human suffering. I actually got to go through when the Berlin Wall was still up when Lee took us into East Germany once. I had that experience as well to see what insanity humanity can do to itself, you know. So at the same time that one has to keep in touch with that, one has to build that inner sanctuary, that inner Mount Athos, that inner fire. Because people I met who are doing service down there, they are some of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Talk about bodhisattvas who are doing things on behalf of others. The very first instruction they gave me I was with another friend that gave us, was that if you're going down there because you want to stroke your ego and take a selfie of yourself standing against the wall, you better forget about it. This is not what this is for. Neither is it for becoming so overwhelmed with pain and suffering of humanity that you become a useless, paralyzed person. The second great teaching that I got from these people is that if you continue to create enemies of anybody, then you keep the wall in place. So they, the people that I met, were very much instructing me as I was riding along with them that we're not, we are not aligned against the border guards. <laughs> if we hate the border guards, or if we create more division and more negativity in regard to them, then we are keeping a wall in place. Even to the point which some of these amazing women were telling me that we must also soften our hearts, even to the drug cartels who are managing so much of this suffering. You imagine, she said, we have to live with that and we have to soften our hearts and bless and witness and pray and be there. So what I saw of enlightened action came out of an inner dedication to having the heart become inflamed with love and service, a desire to touch, a desire to bless, a desire to heal in some way. 
So I share those few moments with you because that's what I went for. I went to witness. I didn't go to do anything. I just went because I needed I needed my own heart to be touched again and opened so that my motivation for a life of quiet sanctuary in the place that I live could actually be more deeply touched, more deeply impressed. So we enter into the place of the heart. We cultivate stillness. We find places of silence. We let the heart get set on fire. We fall in love with each other. Maybe. Be nice. Well, I'd love to hear some closing inspirational comments or sword-like questions or anything else that anybody would like to share at this point. I just wanted to say thank you for bringing out the beauty of Christian mysticism and showing how it's connected with all of the other faith paths. You had mentioned in the beginning something about them all going up to the mountain. I like to think of it as all of the different paths of faith digging a deep well. And if you go deep enough, you find a place where the water is combined. You know, I can't remember who said that. (laughs) Yes, we enter into our well to come to groundwater, the place where we all share the groundwater. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. I'd like to add that in the Bun Buddhist tradition, so the one that's often not mentioned, there's a Rinpoche who says it's not just silence, it's awareness of silence. Mm -hmm. And it's not just stillness, it's the awareness of stillness. So he emphasizes that a lot. Mm -hmm. The various threads that you wove into this was a reminder how the heart didn't correspond necessarily to the physical heart that we look down to. It is the totality. And it's just beautiful to hear the sources you gave were very pertinent to me and very alive for me. And being here tonight feels uh, very, it's not burning quite yet, but it's definitely hot. The question always becomes, so what do you do once the heart is opened? And the answer is nothing. Stay still. (laughs) You know, as soon as you start thinking, oh, now I should go out and do this or that or whatever. When the heart is opened, it will lead you. If you jump in and try and package it and put it on the shelf and go back to it tomorrow. The mind always wants to grab and do something. The game consists a lot of seeing the mind's gyrations and antics and getting a good chuckle from it. Yeah. Jesus said something like, the kingdom is spread out upon the earth, but men do not see. So where is this heart? Well, it's spread out everywhere. But, well, in the great majority of cases, it's not seen. How did Merton put it? It is everywhere. Something like that. With the diamond awareness of the sun. He wrote about it. It's called his 14th and Walnut Experience in Louisville, Kentucky. He's going to the doctor or the dentist or something, and he gets to the corner of 4th and Walnut in Louisville, and there's a plaque there. There's a plaque that says, this is the place. Merton actually had this 
awakening that he's describing in this thing of seeing everybody with this diamond heart just glowing. The sign said this is the place? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You could go and stand there. Maybe it would happen to you. (laughs) It it doesn't work that way, I'm afraid. It's too bad. He died in the 60s. Anything else? Otherwise, we pass on into the silence. I think sometimes those of us who are interested in prayer or meditation, we think we have to have words or we have to have a form or we have to be looking at an image or something like that, rather than just resting in the silence of the body, resting in the breath. I feel very familiar with meditation, but not so familiar with prayer. So I have a deep interest in prayer. It's an exploration for me. I'm really interested in don't have much practice or understanding. The very inquiry, the very sense that there may be something to this or I'm wanting this. That is the prayer in itself. Merton said it is given. We set the foundation, but prayer is actually given as grace, as a gift. And so your longing for it is the very prayer itself, is the divinity setting your heart on fire and moving out to create of yourself a living flame that is touching the world. So There's all kinds of quote-unquote prayer. There's prayer of thanksgiving, which is prayer of gratitude. If each one of us were to become a living flame of gratitude, this is prayer. And this is prayer that transforms the world. If each one of us were to become a living flame of forgiveness, wow, what a way to transform the world. If each one of us were to become a living flame of praise, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar used to say, praise only praise, praise only praise. This is prayer. This is transformation, and it doesn't have to have words. And then there's a prayer of contrition, a prayer of remorse, a prayer of facing the pain of the division I've created in my life with others and allowing the pain of that prayer to transform me without making me a miserable worm under the heel of God. But there is prayer of grief and there's prayer of contrition and there's prayer of sitting with your lover and just looking in their eyes. Wow. With a child. What you're talking about, the mood, has to do with the presence of the divine prior to initiating any prayer. Something has to be there that moves one to pray. And it could be personal need. But yet I just feel from my own life, my own experience, that there's something prior to all that that is resonant and waiting. Just the other day, I came across a couple of lines in a poem that Lee wrote that just really hold this for me right now. It's just two lines. This is like a prayer. Remember us, Father, that we may remember you. 
So I read that and I went on to other things and I went, wait a minute. Whoa. And I had to go back and in a way be still with this because it conveyed a mood about prayer, meaning the presence of the divine is making itself available when all of a sudden we're moved. Whether it's in looking at the sun or a kind act or whatever, that's what I wanted to say. It's beyond just the simple act of how come I'm not praying. It's all about being aware, perhaps, paying more attention to the fact that somebody may be knocking on your door, the divine, <laughs> maybe, maybe right there. And we just don't have the sensitivity sometimes to open the door or just realize there's that presence. So remember us, Father, that we may re- remember you. I think leaves it at the feet of the divine. Om Namah Shivaya.